Welcome to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here, we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Danielle Gaines, here with my co-host, Andy Schatz. Hello. And we are In the Booth. Glad Hill Furniture is the only place you need to visit. Save big by taking half off all leather furniture store-wide. And this month, you can also take advantage of 24 months 0% financing. Stop by and visit one of our expert design consultants and get luxury for less. Congressman John Delaney will tell you he's more of a businessman than a politician. Delaney, who's from Potomac, has represented Maryland's 6th District in the U.S. House since 2012. The former CEO of two publicly traded companies, Delaney views his work in Congress as pragmatic, working across party lines on economic and infrastructure issues. Delaney, a multimillionaire, has also proposed a surtax on incomes over $500,000 in order to provide universal pre-kindergarten, and he supports nationwide congressional redistricting reform. Delaney joined us in the booth to discuss his time in the House and his re-election bid. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here at the uh, Frederick News Post. Thank you. Um, well, some of our listeners might not have had a chance to meet you in person yet. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I'm, uh, I live in Montgomery County. I have uh, married to a, a, a wonderful woman uh, named April McLean Delaney. We met in law school at Georgetown. I have four daughters. My oldest daughter is 23, uh, and my next is 20 then 16 and 9, so the oldest is just out of college, and the youngest is uh, just started fourth grade. Um, I'm from New Jersey originally. I grew up in uh, North Jersey, uh, right outside New York City near Giant Stadium. Uh, my dad was a union electrician, so I blew, grew up in a very blue-collar uh, household. Went to college uh, in New York City at Columbia University. I was fortunate that my dad's union paid for me to go to college through various scholarships, which gave me a, a great start in life. I came down here um, and to the Washington area and attended Georgetown for law school, which is where I met April, which was the best day of my life. She's from Idaho, and uh, she had gone to Northwestern undergrad and, and went to the law school, and we met my third year, her second year. I always thought I would maybe move back to the New York area. I would describe her interest in moving to the New York area mm -hmm. as non-existent, and uh, being from Idaho, she always thought she'd live on the West Coast, uh, and California in particular. And uh, we resolved that by staying in the Washington area. I practiced law for about a year, and then I uh, started my first business with uh, two law school classmates. And uh, after a couple kind of starts with different things, we ended up starting a business that financed small to mid-sized healthcare companies. So we were basically a bank to growing healthcare companies like rural hospitals and long-term care facilities and things like that. We started that business in the early 90s. Uh, I took it public on the New York Stock Exchange in 1996. I was the youngest, I think at the time I was the youngest CEO in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. And I ran that business for a couple of years and then we sold it. And then I took some time off, but about a year later I started another business. And uh, both of these businesses were in Maryland, uh, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And that company was called Capital Source which focused on lending money to small to mid-sized businesses all around the country, uh, basically a bank for small businesses. It was our view that large banks were ignoring the needs of small businesses and uh, community banks do a good job, but sometimes businesses grow too fast, uh, even for community banks, and they, they need more specialized expertise to finance their growth. And so we started a business to do that all acro across the country. It became very successful. Uh, that became a public company in 2003. And I ran it until I decided to run for office uh, and was first elected in 2012. My two companies, um, as I said, we ended up financing 5,000 small to mid-sized businesses all over the country. I loved it. I met all these fabulous small business owners and entrepreneurs who had these dreams of building businesses and doing great things. Uh, we created 2,000 jobs here in Maryland. So I had a very you know, significant 20-plus year private sector career. And uh, across that time, across those years, building those businesses, April and I got very involved in our communities in uh, kind of various philanthropic activities, and we really loved it. 
we were focusing on education, uh, health care mostly for children, and uh, a variety of other causes. Uh, my wife was one of the co-founders, or is one of the co-founders of an organization called Common Sense Media, which focuses on media literacy for children. Uh, the, the view of common sense is that, you know, kids unfortunately spend as much time with the media uh, as they do with their parents and their teachers combined, and that neither the kids nor the parents were actually as literate as they need to be in dealing with the, these emerging forces in the media. And so Common Sense was basically formed to become the AARP for kids, particularly as it relates to the media. And they deal with privacy issues. They're in about 100,000 schools with curriculum. We're, we're, we, uh, we're going to, uh, April and I made a, a gift to help start it in Montgomery County. It's going to be rolling out um, uh, at the end of October. And they do advocacy work. Um, and they help get the violent video game legislation passed, stuff like that. So April and I became very involved, and in, in, in particular April, who was doing it almost full-time in a variety of community and philanthropic activities. And we kind of thought that going into public service, you know, we view these things as a joint effort, as a team. Uh, going into public service and government was a way of kind of extending that part of our lives in a deeper, more engaged way. And uh, that felt really good to us. So we started to think about ways to... to uh, you know, go deeper in, in what I'll call public service. And that led to my decision to run for Congress in 2012. And it was my view that the things I'd learned in business, really understanding the private economy of the United States, building business, creating jobs, but also working with so many small to mid-sized businesses all over the country um, was something that was really additive to the Congress. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of uh, our life. I feel very blessed, uh, like a lot of people do, to, to have a great family and live in a wonderful community and have had the opportunities this country has given me. So as you complete a second term, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what makes you decide that you'd like to keep doing it? Uh, you know, I really like it. I mean, I think the issues, um, first of all, it's a great country and you really appreciate it more in some ways when you serve. I've become much more optimistic about the United States. I was always an optimist by nature. I don't think you're, you're an entrepreneur unless you're an optimist. But I've become much more optimistic about the United States now that I've had the privilege of serving. I think the hand that we have as a nation is, is remarkable relative to anywhere else in the world. I think we can play it better from time to time. Uh, and I think in the last kind of dozen years, we haven't done some obvious things that we should. But, I, you know, I, I find it very rewarding. I feel like the issues that I'm working on are are both things I care about and, and are really important, not only to my constituents, but to the country. And um, I think we've, uh, you know, I, I found it to be uh, not only interesting, but rewarding and, and something that really energizes me. And again, I, I, I often refer to we when I talk about this, because April and I, we, we really do this view as collective decision. We still have two of our kids at home, two are either out of the house or in college. And I think it's been a, a you know, a terrific experience. And uh, there's a lot of frustrations people have with Congress. People all the time say to me, oh, you must hate it. You can't get anything done. And there is some of that. But you also start appreciating how our government was designed. I mean, it was really designed such that things couldn't get done unless there was broad consensus in the country. And that, that actually makes sense to me. And you see it firsthand when you serve. Uh, and you get to spend time with veterans and our servicemen and women. And you get to spend so much time with young people. And it just kind of makes you optimistic. So uh, I've thus far viewed it as a really great experience. It's rewarding. I feel like I'm making a difference, not only in the lives of my constituents, but in the national dialogue. And uh, I kind of want to double down on it. So speaking of, of Congress and maybe some division there, it hasn't exactly right. been a cakewalk the last few years. But um, polls now are showing that Americans who are Democrats and Republicans are even farther apart from one mm -hmm. another than they've ever been. Um, how do you see yourself working in what might be an even more divisive environment after this election? So you're right, Danielle, and I, I think it's it's disturbing. I mean, Pew Research recently did a bunch of stuff on that and, and indicated those trends. And, you know, I blame the political parties because, you know, there's a really bad incentive system in the country right now. The political parties are really incentivized to drive wedges in the country. And I think we're seeing that this election cycle. I mean, first, I'll be critical of my party, the Democratic Party. I think we have spent way too much time messaging to our constituents a message that basically could be summarized as saying that everyone has sold out. One of the messages of the Democratic Party has been everyone's a sellout. They've either sold their, their self to corporate America or to Wall Street or one of these things. And the Republicans 
have uh, equally put forth a message that's not true. And their message has been that everyone in Washington is a fool and the government is completely broken. And I think these messages have fundamentally polarized the country. And, uh, and that has really been in this, the parties have viewed that in their self-interest, this riling up of their base. And it's left um, the country both polarized, but it's also left a lot of Americans feeling like they have no home in either of these parties. And what I try to do is I try to think about, you know, public policy in terms of where are the best ideas. And if you look at a lot of the challenges the country faces and a lot of the opportunities that we're not able to really realize to our fullest extent, I think solutions really actually lie on both sides of the aisle. Uh, obviously, I've chosen my party because of fundamental things about the way I look at the world and, and what my party stands for that makes me a Democrat. But that doesn't mean I don't believe the, the conservative movement or Republicans are void of good ideas. And that's the problem with the political parties. If you listen to the Demo- a lot of Democrats, they'll tell you that everything Republicans believe is wrong. And if you listen to a lot of Republicans, they'll tell you everything Democrats believe is wrong. And there's no way this would be as great a country it is, as it is if half the population were always wrong, which is what they're basically trying to tell you. So what I try to do, you know, is find good ideas and to the best extent I can pair them up. And one of the big areas that I've built a lot of bipartisan support around is, is increasing our investment in infrastructure, because I think infrastructure should be our top domestic economic priority. I think it gets at all the issues we should be worried about as a country. It improves the quality of life of our citizens. If you think about some of the commutes, think about where we're sitting here in Frederick, right near 270. If you think about the unbearable commutes people have and how much time it's taking out of their lives, I mean, you can't think of a two or three hour commute or a four hour commute in the context of 24 hour day, because you know, six, seven, eight hours are spoken for with sleep. Seven, eight, nine, ten hours are spoken for at work. You know, you don't have much time left. And to be giving 75% of that time away to a commute and away from your family, away from your community, away from the things that, you know, enrich you as a person, I think is a tragedy. So infrastructure improves that. It puts people to work with exactly the type of jobs we need in this country. If you think about what's happening from an employment standpoint in this country, uh, and, and some of the employment data has actually been pretty darn positive that's come out recently, including the stuff that came out this week, which we can talk about, which is really incredibly positive data about what's happened to wages among all kind of deciles of, of the earning group, if you will. But on a macro level, we're creating high-skilled, high-paid jobs and low-skilled, low-paid jobs. And we're not creating middle-skilled, middle-class jobs, which are always the backbone of the country. And that's happening for a lot of reasons. Globalization, technological innovation, all these kind of forces are disrupting the face of work. And I think a national jobs program around infrastructure would really create a tremendous amount of jobs that are exactly the kind of jobs that we're missing, which are good middle-class, middle-skilled jobs, the kind of jobs people can have and have one of them and raise their family and hopefully have a rising standard of living. So infrastructure does that, and it makes our businesses more competitive. Uh, There's a Harvard professor named Michael Porter who every two years does does the most kind of uh, highly regarded survey on business competitiveness. In other words, what will make U.S. businesses as competitive as possible in a global world? And always at the top of the list is infrastructure. So infrastructure has this triple bottom line. So, so that's been something that I've really cared about. And, and quite frankly, the Democratic Party has really pushed spending money on infrastructure. And we as Democrats have been absolutely right about that. The question has been how to pay for it. Now, my Republican colleagues for a long time have been pushing this idea that we have to fix our international tax system which is causing U.S. corporations to keep $2 trillion of cash overseas. We have an outdated system. It was designed for a very different time when U.S. corporations made about 10% of their money overseas. Now they make more than half of their money overseas. And it's causing them to keep all this cash overseas. So, And they've wanted to fix that because they think bringing that money back to the United States is good for our economy. And, and Republicans are right about that. So what we did is came up with a way of pairing these ideas where we created a reform to the international tax system that created, made it easier for the money to be brought back. It actually generated revenues for the government, and we applied it to infrastructure. And it received tremendous bipartisan support because we basically went out there and said, you know, these are both good ideas. One came from the progressive movement. One came from the conservative movement. So let's acknowledge that they're good ideas, and let's put them together and give everyone a win. I think that increasingly is how you have to legislate. Uh, because you can't come to the table thinking the other party is entirely wrong about everything they believe. You talked a little bit about commute time, which brings up two important transportation issues for Frederick County, Interstate 270 and Metro. 
Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what improvements you would like to see for each? Well, on, on, well, 270, in my opinion, should have been and should still be the top transportation project for the state of Maryland. And I'm not just saying that because I represent the 270 corridor. I, even if it wasn't the best project, I would say that because it's my job. But I really think if you look at the facts, if you look at where the economic growth opportunities are in the state of Maryland— on a relative basis, I think they're tremendous up and down the 270 corridor. And I think what's happened there in terms of the commute times people have to deal with, I, I think it's just unbearable. I, I don't know any highway in the country that goes from about six lanes to two in as short a distance as, as 270 does. And so on Monday, um, I'm, we're going to have a big kind of press conference because I'm the, I'm the new chair of the effort to the business community effort to restart the the widening of 270 as a priority and you know i'm not an engineer but i have talked to a lot of engineers and i've looked at 270 myself pretty carefully and i think widening of 270 creating dynamic lanes that reverse themselves uh, uh depending on the time of the day Thinking about technologies, there's a lot of pretty innovative technologies that are coming up that, that may allow, it's not driverless cars, but it may allow particularly buses and, and, and trucks to basically stack in really tight to each other, where it's not a driverless car, but it creates a way for the driver to basically drive really close to the car in front of them, and, and they almost, they're almost linked like trains using technology that enables them to do it. All those issues, I think, have to be on the table, including creating the the, the kind of the bus rapid transit network, the quarter city transport system that was designed to go around the 270 area, mostly in Montgomery County. So that is, I think, a, you know, I think it's a no-brainer from an economic development standpoint, and it's incredibly important for, for my constituents. So I've been as big an advocate as possible on doing things around 270. And then as it relates to Metro. So Metro is really a, an enterprise or an organization in, in a crisis mode. As, as we know. I mean, the Metro was a very successful transit system for a long period of time. But it's my view that Metro has basically suffered from a governance problem, right? The problems are so significant at Metro that you can't necessarily blame individuals anymore, right? Or the, the, the management team. Even I think the current management team is actually pretty good. I think you got to question some prior management teams. But I think at its core, there's been a governance issue with Metro where we've allowed the, the different jurisdictions, and there's three, there's Maryland, there's Virginia, the District of Columbia, and now the federal government, to basically put people on the board of Metro who are only looking out for their own interests, right? So you basically have a board that has fiduciaries who are not, in my opinion, thinking about the whole of the network they're thinking about what's good for Virginia, if I'm one of the Virginia appointees, or what's good for Maryland. And, and again, I get that. That's their job. But it leads to basically a dysfunctional organization where they're not actually thinking about the whole system. And I think that's why we've had – I think that's why it's been hard to get more funding, right? Because, it, because it's been run poorly, people don't have confidence giving it money. And because it hasn't received the money it's needed, it hasn't invested in itself, and it started to spiral. So among all the various things that I think should be doing for Metro, what I've proposed, which is a really unique solution, is to change the governance model, where you have a board, and the board members are appointed by the jurisdictions as they are now, but the jurisdictions have to certify that the people they appoint have expertise, either in finance, transit, or large-scale management. Because right now, what you get with the Metro board members, and I don't mean to be critical, but there's a lot of truth to what I'm saying, you get kind of political people who, you know, it's political payback time or whatever the case may be, and they get on the board of Metro. And I, I want the board of Metro to be incredibly high-quality professionals who really think not only about their own jurisdictions that appointed them, but really think about how they make this system run to an incredibly high standard. So th that's one of the things that I've been doing on Metro, for example. <clears throat> Do you get to ride Metro much? Uh, I don't ride it as much as I used to. So I, I do ride it from, from time to time because, you know, there are some, uh, you know, there's this stops on the hill and sometimes when I have to go downtown. But my office used to be, when I was in business, in Chevy Chase, uh, in Friendship Heights. And uh, whenever I used to have to go downtown, I would take the Metro 
all the time. Uh, and sometimes when I come, uh, when I come uh, uh, back from uh, New York or Philadelphia and I'm taking Amtrak, I'll go to Union Station and I'll take the red line up to, up to uh, Bethesda and my wife will meet me there and mm-hmm. go home from there. But I used to, I, the truth be told, I used to take it a lot more when I was in the private sector because my office building was literally on top of the metro right in Friendship Heights. And it's the only way I would ever go into the city. Uh, I wanted to touch on another issue, and sure. that's um, something that's been uh, high profile in the state right now, and it, that's criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're also having a national conversation about that. Um, what reforms, if any, do you think are necessary on the federal level? You know, look, at I think <clears throat> I, I think there's there's a lot of evidence that the criminal justice reform system has failed uh, across the board. I mean, we, we think about these, you know, decisions in the context of some of the larger things that are going on in the world. And it's obvious if you look at the, how people are getting incarcerated and, and how long they're staying for the type of crimes they committed and then the obstacles that they face, uh, you know, when, when they get out of the, the prison system in terms of engaging back in the workforce. You know, I think there's a whole variety of things that need to be looked at at both the state uh, and the federal level um, in doing so. I mean, I think it's got to be done in the context of making sure that public safety is maintained. Uh, and, you know, that's got to be balanced, of course. Uh, but, you know, I think the system needs a variety of reforms. And I think where the federal government plays a role is on setting standards, particularly around juvenile offenses. Okay. Um Sticking with criminal justice for a minute, um, what are your thoughts on uh, the legalization of marijuana? So, you know, I think fortunately we have a few live uh, case studies in front of us uh, in Colorado and in Washington State (coughs) where I think we're going to see how it unfolds uh, across time. I mean, I'm clearly in favor of the legalization of medical marijuana. And, you know, I'm directionally in favor of, uh, you know, limitations as it relates to criminal justice on the possession of small amounts and not having your life ruined because you have a small amount of pot. You know, am I ready to embrace full legalization of marijuana in Maryland the same way it is in Colorado? The answer is I'd like to see more data to see how it plays out. Because you look at I understand the positives. Uh, as it relates to the drug trade and getting it out from the shadows and reducing violence that's related to that uh, and to the extent people have issues making addiction something that's easier to manage. I also understand why states want to do it for the money, right, because it's very profitable and it basically moves a lot of transactions that are currently not taxed into the taxable system. So it's a revenue generator. Uh, that's not the reason to do it, by the way. You know, I think states have become overly addicted to gambling for the same reasons, which is something I'm not, as, uh, I'm not really that in favor of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, listen, there are consequences, right? And I do worry the effect on youth. I do worry the effect on, on addiction because it is an addictive uh, substance. You know, it's not as serious as many of the other illegal substances and when you see kind of the the epidemics that are going on in this country opioid epidemics etc but you know the a lot of the marijuana that's produced now and manufactured now is much more powerful than it was 20 or 30 years ago uh so i'm not uh at this point willing to support legalization of marijuana across the state of maryland which doesn't mean i couldn't get there and as i said i think fortunately we have an example we're going to have some really live due diligence, and I think we'll be able to look at how it's playing out in these other states uh, and, and make a more informed decision when, when we as Marylanders have to think about that topic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we just passed the 15th anniversary of 9-11, which gave us <clears throat> excuse me, a chance to reflect on how the country has changed since this happened. Um, in particular, safety. It's an undercurrent toward everything we think about. Um, how, how do you see this country as being safer today, and why? So, you know, when you think back at 9-11, and we all thought about it, and we all remembered 
where we were when it happened. I was actually on a plane flying down to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, for business that morning, I'd taken off at a national airport and was flying down to Charlotte. And uh, I remember when um, looking out of the plane window and seeing military planes next to our plane, and the plane landed, and one tower had been hit. And then the uh, when I was just leaving the airport to go to my meeting, the second tower was hit. And I remember I was with someone. I said, we just got to go get a rent-a-car. And we ran and got one of the last rent-a-cars and dr- drove home. And as I was driving home thinking about, you know, hearing, following the stories, talking to my wife and following the stories about, you know, the, the plane hitting the Pentagon and, um, you know, the plane that no one knew where it was. And there were all these false alarms and everything. And I would say after that day, I think if you were to go to the average American and say, what do you think the chances of there being another large scale terrorist attack in the United States of America uh, in the next 10 years? If you were to ask most Americans that day at 9-11. I think most Americans would have said very high probability, right? I think we were almost certain as a country that those kind of tragedies, uh, in, you know, that would become part of our normal life. You know, uh, fortunately, and you know, with the with the grace of God, we haven't had anything like that since, which doesn't mean we won't. But I think the government, uh, our government, responded from a homeland security perspective, um, incredibly well. And we dedicated a lot of resources. We created a, a new agency, the Department of Homeland Security. I think law enforcement, who obviously acted heroically that day, uh, you know, here in, in the Washington area with the Pentagon and in New York City, obviously. Um, you know, and I knew people who died in 9-11. Friends of mine, you know, who kind of my age, working in New York, you know, uh, two in particular. And, um, you know, I think we've responded as you would expect the United States to respond from a homeland security perspective. We put a lot of resources against it. A lot of tremendous people dedicated their lives to making the safety of the country their their mission, whether it be at law enforcement all the way up to, you know, senior people in the federal government making decisions and, and allocating resources and giving resources to this place. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a constant day-to-day struggle. And I think we can't underestimate the importance of intelligence as it relates to this. Because if you talk to people who really have experience in this, they're like, you know, you need two things. You need all the kind of physical stuff that we do, the personnel, you know, the, cap- the capacity, the capability that y- you all see when you think about Homeland Security. But you also need intelligence. And um, I do worry uh, that, you know, when, the, um, when we had the disclosure – about what the NSA was doing, which was terrible in that it wasn't disclosed to the American people. You know, because I think the American people can deal with a lot of things if they know about it. But the fact that they didn't know that the NSA was basically keeping records of every single phone call ever made, I mean, it blew people's mind when they heard that. You know, I do worry uh, that there might be an overcorrection and we might lose some intelligence capabilities that are really, really important and keep America safe. So I think it's an incredibly important debate, both sides of that debate, about privacy, which Americans care about tremendously, uh, much more so than people in other parts of the world, like in Great Britain, which is a place that is dealing, has dealt with terrorism for a much longer period of time in many ways. You know, they've largely surrendered a lot of the privacy that we would never think about surrendering in this country. Um, but making sure we also have the intelligent resources to keep us safe. And I think there's a lot of investments that haven't been made. I mean, still right now at airports, you know, the, the protection that is in place to make sure someone doesn't put a explosive on a plane in through check bag is not that we're x-raying every bag because we're not. It's, it, it's if you stay on the plane, right? So if you've ever been on a plane and someone says, I don't feel well, I got to get off, that person has a check bag, they keep the plane there and they take the bag off. It's not that we actually are looking at all the bags that go on a plane, for example. Uh, we've been relying on the fact that people won't commit suicide by putting a bomb on the, checking a, a, a explosive into, into the cargo hold of a plane. So there's just a lot of things like that we have to do. Are the electric grid in this country, which is tremendously vulnerable uh, to uh, threats and attacks, and it has catastrophic effects if there's blackouts, or if you think about how 
utterly and entirely and completely this country is dependent upon electricity to power everything we do. Everything we do runs electronically at this point in our lives. If you think about losing electricity in, in, in your typical day, pretty much everything you deal with, engage with in, in your life, you wouldn't be able to do. And it really costs, there's various estimates. I've heard as low as $5 billion to as high as $20 billion to really harden a very high percentage of the electrical grid in this country against the kind of uh, attacks that could bring down major portions of the grid. And so we, but we haven't made that a priority. Uh, to me, it's, been, it's an infrastructure <coughs> issue. And uh, I'd like to see more. Don't want to make jokes about coughing, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I did cough there for your listeners. Um, to me, this is an infrastructure question, and we just haven't allocated the resources as smartly as we need to. So do I think the country is is safer on an absolute basis? The answer is yes. Do I think the threats are getting more significant? The answer is yes as well. So you, you, the rate of growth of our safety has to match the rate of growth of, of our threats. That's probably been pretty consistent. Um, on another topic, if this election season goes a certain way, um, there wouldn't be any women in Maryland's delegation to Congress and the Senate. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Do you think it's important to have women in the room during political debate? Yes, I think it's incredibly important to have women. It's important to have women in every, uh, it's important to have diversity, right, in a whole variety of ways, and including uh, making sure women's voices are heard. I mean, one of the issues that I've worked very hard on is pay equity for women, right? Again, some of the data that came out this week was more encouraging. Women are now earning 80% of what men do for the same work as opposed to 75%. So that's a pretty big improvement, but it's still not 100%. And it's more concerning if you look what's going on in, in the ranks of corporate America, because right now, the number of women going to college versus men is roughly equal to the, their relative percentage of the population. And similarly with them graduating, which wasn't always that case. So basically, a college going into college and getting out of college is completely reflective of the population. Getting their first jobs, completely reflective of the population. But then if you look at how women kind of ascend in corporate America relative to men, the statistics get, start getting pretty uh, negative, right? So I think it's the promotion to the vice president level, right? Again, same number of women and men roughly going to college, graduating college, getting the first job. But that first promotion, 75% men, 25% women. And then a promotion to the C-suite, which is kind of the most senior executives of a corporation. It's about 15% women. 85% men. And that's a real talent drain. Uh, and, and doesn't put, it seems to me, the private sector of the United States in a position to make as good decisions. So I think that's true in politics, too. I mean, I think we should have, obviously, women uh, in the political debate. Um, you know. And, and what is, for the benefit of our listeners, what is your position on some of the issues that might be important to women? Um, uh, abortion rights or right to life? So um, so as a Catholic, as a practicing Catholic, which my wife and I are, we follow the teachings of our church as it relates to our own home, right? And so that's how we would respond to those kind of issues. But as a citizen of this country who believes in the separation of church and state, I don't believe my religious views should be imposed upon uh, other people. And I think uh, reproductive freedom is entirely up to the woman. And, you know, so I obviously support uh, the fact that women have reproductive freedom and can make these decisions for themselves. Uh, And I completely support that, recognizing that in my own house, my wife and I would would choose something else. Um, And this extends to, you know, Planned Parenthood, which has been the topical debate, which is a, a very important provider of, of health care services for women in, in this country. We've had this big debate around Zika funding uh, on the Hill where my Republican colleagues have not wanted any of the money uh, that we're, we should have already allocated towards Zika, by the way, 
uh, and we'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but they don't want any of that to go through Planned Parenthood. And if you look at places where Zika is really in utterly crisis mode, or utter crisis mode, like Puerto Rico, one of the main providers of of, of women's health care is Planned Parenthood. And so it's it's completely contradicting the intent of a lot of this funding to say that Planned Parenthood can't do it. You know, my opponent doesn't support funding of Planned Parenthood, uh, but I do, and it's unfortunately been a big uh, ideological debate right now on Capitol Hill. And the Zika situation, we, we should probably talk about that because hopefully in the next week or two we will fund Zika funding. But the government is running out of money to combat Zika on September 30th. And they've done everything they can to find resources to continue to fund. And this is a very, very, I mean, what's going on in Florida right now, it's, it's a little hard for us to imagine here in Maryland because we're not thinking this way, but women are making a decision not to have children. Parents are telling their, you know, their young daughters, do not get pregnant. There are people now who, who are pregnant who are infected with this virus. The condition of these children is so horrific when, they're, when, they're, uh, when they actually have the full-blown disease. It is estimated that it will cost $10 million across their life to care for these babies that are, have this tragedy uh, bestowed upon them. And we have to be providing women's health care. We have to be educating people, right? And we have to be building and creating a vaccine and so much of this money. And when the president asked for $1.9 billion, he didn't kind of go into his office and pull out a whiteboard and play around with numbers. He went to the head of the CDC and he went to the head of NIH and he asked them, how, you know, what should be our strategy to fight this? Right, which you have to fight it on our shores to the extent it's here, but you also have to provide money to where it's coming from, just like we did with Ebola, which has been incredibly successful, by the way. The effort that we launched against Ebola, and a lot of people were saying, well, we should, we should not let anyone fly back and forth. You know, we shouldn't do anything. I mean, the, the public health response that was designed by the CDC and the NIH to deal with the Ebola crisis was spot on right. Because if you look what's happened to Ebola, it's largely been eradicated in a relatively short period of time. And the exact same people came up with the strategy to deal with Zika. And they said, this is what we should do. And this is how much money we should spend. And so the fact that the Congress of the United States kind of debated this wisdom when you have a clear public health crisis facing the United States. But, but your question was about women's reproductive freedom. I fully support women's reproductive freedom and including the funding of Planned Parenthood, which I think is part and parcel with it in the United States of America today, for, particularly for many women. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have now seen two years or so of the Affordable Health Care Act in action, yes. and you've seen many votes to try to repeal it in the House. Um, do you think that there is anything about the act, now that it's been around for a little while, that you would like to change? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a bunch of things I'd like to change. So, so let me answer the question a couple of different ways. First of all, kind of as a matter of policy, which is if the Congress of the United States does something really big, we should sign up for fixing it over time because we shouldn't presume that we got it right. And it's true of the Affordable Care Act, and it's true of Dodd-Frank, and it's true of many other significant things that unfortunately we haven't been able to do smart fixes on because of this ideological debate. Either it's perfect or you're it needs to be repealed entirely. So that's, that's a big problem with the way Congress acts right now because we're basically in a position where we can't do anything big because we don't sign up to fix it. And I think that's a, a, a massive kind of uh, breakdown in, in our responsibility as, as, as elected officials. So the Affordable Care Act was designed to do a couple things. First, it was designed to get a lot of people insured who, wasn't, who weren't insured, which I thought was, I believe is really important. I mean, I think healthcare is a basic right. In 2016, in the wealthiest country in the world, I think basic health care is a right. It's also smart economics because the fact that so many people were uninsured was costing this country a huge amount of money because in various ways they were getting the care, and oftentimes they were getting it in ways that were much more expensive because they didn't get the care along the way. So that was the first goal of the Affordable Care Act. The second goal of the Affordable Care Act was to change a bunch of the incentives that were embedded in the health care system. Right, because the United States of America, we spend twice as much for health care as other kind of comparable countries, but we, we absolutely do not get twice the quality 
right? Our outcomes are really good, but they're not 2x other countries who, 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 are, who are spending half what we're spending. So there was a lot of efforts to change the incentive system within the Affordable Care Act. And then the third part of the Affordable Care Act was, um, you know, effectively to clean up some things that a lot of people thought were just flaws in the healthcare system, pre-existing conditions, the fact that kids couldn't stay on their parents' policies, right? And then the fourth part of the Affordable Care Act was how you pay for all these things, right? So those were really the different components. So look, at the first part has worked well. The number of people who have been insured, the number of uninsured continues to fall at a rapid rate. You know, millions and millions and millions of America have insurance now that they didn't have it before. And, you know, the system was put in place to create effectively pools. And there were various risk corridors developed and risk pools and subsidies put forth by the government. And that's worked pretty well. You know, it hasn't worked perfectly. I mean, one of the problems have been the first year the Affordable Care Act rolled out, people were shocked with how low the premiums were in some of the kind of state-organized pools, right, to deal with the individually insured and the uninsured. And since then, because the health outcomes were worse than people thought, and there was a variety of adverse selection that went on, and people didn't quite behave the way they thought, the penalties for not having insurance, you know, for many people didn't create enough incentive for them not to have insurance. So a lot of the healthier people still stayed out of these pools. So based on the first year performance, right, uh, and healthcare costs being much higher and, and the insurance companies are losing a lot of money, they've all raised their rates quite high. Now those increase in rates look very high, but relative to where people thought it would be at this point in time, they're actually not. Because what happened is the first year rates were much lower than people thought. So we need to do a lot of fixes there. We need to figure out a way to encourage more healthy people to enter these risk pools so that the performance of the risk pools doesn't reflect so much adverse selection. And I think there's ways of doing that that we haven't been able to do. So that's kind of my report card on the first section of the Affordable Care Act, which is really the headline section, which is how do you get all these people mm -hmm. insured? It's worth getting people insured, but I don't think we worked out the plumbing as well as we could have to keep the costs as low as they could be if we did a better job. And there's a whole bunch of policy fix we should do. The second part of the Affordable Care Act, which is to change some of the incentives in the healthcare system. For example, if you're a hospital and you have a lot of readmissions, you get penalized. So you're encouraged to work with home healthcare providers and other kinds of providers to, to, to manage people's care in a way that doesn't have as much kind of high cost intervention with the hospital. That's worked really well. I mean, if you look at the rate of growth of healthcare expenses in this country, they're down, right? And that is the single most important number in the fiscal health of the country, healthcare, right? Because it has been growing at a rate much faster than wages, much faster than inflation. And because it grew so much faster than inflation, it's largely taken crowded out wage growth in this country. I mean, if you go back uh, over the last several decades and you look at the growth of healthcare and you look at the growth of inflation, and if you look at the growth in wages, it's clear what's happened in America which is the way we've paid for health care to go up is by not raising wages, right? That's one aspect of what's happened with health care. The second aspect of what's happened with health care is what it's done to the federal budget, right, with Medicare costs, et cetera. And so bending the curve on health care costs is the single most important thing you could do for the long-term fiscal health of the country. And the data is clear. Some people tried to blame it on the recession. They said, well, the reason health care costs aren't growing since the Great Recession is that ah, because people aren't spending like they used to. Well, well, first of all, not many people spend, pay for their own health care. So it's not as correlated to consumer spending habits. And secondly, the, the recent economic data kind of proves that the, in many ways, while we still have a lot of pain in this country, the Great Recession of 08 is largely over. And the rate of health care costs uh, still is below what it was historically. So I think it's hard to make the case that the Affordable Care Act hasn't affected the growth of health care in a way that's positive for the country. Mm -hmm. The other things I think are pretty obvious, pre-existing conditions, being able to stay on your parents' health care. You know, now people act like that's not a big deal, but, but that was actually a big deal. And the other area that needs fixing is how we pay for it, right? One of the things I have not supported is things like requiring companies to offer health care. Um, and I've consistently voted to, to – that's a mandate where under the Affordable Care Act, if you have more than 50 employees, you're required to offer health care. My view on that is if we already have a way for individually insured or uninsured Americans to get health care uh, through the exchanges that have been created, et cetera, you don't need to change force a change of behavior 
uh, in the corporate marketplace. So yeah, there are a whole bunch of things we need to do to fix. Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> it's okay. But it was like, a very long piece of legislation, <laughs> as we all know. Yes. I wanted to touch just on one last issue really sure. briefly um, about the um, Maryland's congressional district map. You yes. were first elected under that map, and that's now the subject of a federal lawsuit. Um, do you think that the state of Maryland is gerrymandered, and do you think that there should be a national solution to partisan redistricting? So I think every state that doesn't have redistricting reform is effectively gerrymandered. Uh, I have the singular legislation in the Congress to do national redistricting reform. So my answer to that question is obviously yes. I think the redistricting situation is one of the great kind of, kind of points of crisis in the country right now. Because what's effectively happened in the United States is 80 to 85% of the congressional districts are considered safe because they've been gerrymandered to be safe. And as a result, if you believe in the power of incentives, which I do, uh, as someone who spent my whole career building businesses and, and creating jobs, you realize that incentives really do matter in life. Those people effectively have an incentive to not talk to half the population. Because, in th- and not that they, they should behave this way, but again, you have to realize the power of incentives. Their incentive is to only talk to people in their party because the only election that's relevant for them is their primary because they could largely be deceased and still win their general election because they're so one-sided. And that creates the partisanship you alluded to earlier, and that creates the dysfunction. And I can tell you as someone who has really made my mark in the Congress doing bipartisan things, uh, because again, Political party was never that relevant to me in my prior life. I mean, I was a Democrat, and, and I did things to help my party. But in business, you don't think about politics, right? You, you, you get to know people, and you value them based on their integrity, their ethics, their, their talent. Um, and I, I had extensive business relationships with people for 10 years, traveled with them, knew their family, and never would talk to them about politics. So I, I, I'm the last person in the Congress who thinks about politics first. But I can tell you, as someone who tries to do bipartisan legislation, when you go to someone who's in one of these safe districts and says, I have this bipartisan bill, and they'll sit there and many of them will say, well, yeah, that's a good bill. I like that. And, and if they're a re- Republican, they'll say, but you got a lot of Democrats on that bill. And if they're a Democrat, they'll be like, you got a lot of Republicans on that bill. And I'll be like, yeah, it's a bipartisan bill. That, that's what bipartisan is. They're like, eh. You know, my primary, that'll be rough. They'll say I'm in bed with the other party. So why don't, why don't you come back to me after my primary? I can't tell you how many of those conversations I've had. So this should be an on-the-level process. It should be an absolute on-the-level process. And what my legislation does, it creates independent commissions. And, and that can be done. And even the late Justice Scalia, who was widely admired for his interpretation of the Constitution, has said under the Elections Clause of the Constitution that the federal government can prescribe standards to the states as to how to create their districts. They can't tell them how to create their districts, but they can create standards. And so we believe it is completely constitutional to, for the federal government to basically pass a law that says the states have to use some kind of independent process for determining these districts. That's the first thing our legislation did. The second thing our legislation does is create open primaries, which mean, is kind of top two. Right, so the top two vote getters go into the general election, which is now the California system. And then the third thing, which is probably the least consequential, is we make election day a holiday, right? So more people can vote, because I do think we have a we have a uh, a, a representative de- a, a crisis in representative democracy right now in the country, where the people in Congress largely espouse positions that is not broadly supported by the American public. And and, I'll, and, and again, I'm not that partisan, but I'll, I'll use my Republican colleagues as an example. Recent polling has made it clear that not only do a majority of Americans think climate change is a problem, but for the first time, a majority of Republicans believe climate change is a problem and that the behavior of, of, of human beings is contributing to it. And listen, I think climate change is a problem. Humans are contributing to it. I think we can fix it in a way that is incredibly pro-growth for our economy. I think we can position the United States to be the absolute leader in the advanced energy economy. Uh, and I could talk about that extensively, but the point is, if you listen to congressional Republicans, you would never think that a majority of Republicans, let alone a majority of the country, believe climate change is a problem. And I use this as one example. I could give examples on both sides of the aisle. But this is a problem 
that the, the people, the 500 people in Washington are not really talking about issues, not only in the way the American people want to hear them talked about, because what the American people want to hear, okay, these are the issues, these are the facts, and this is how we resolved it. That's what the American people basically want from their elected officials. They may agree, they may disagree with the solution, they may agree and disagree with what their priorities should be, but they actually want them to come together and come up with solutions. That's not happening. Uh, and the other thing is they're actually talking about issues in ways that don't even reflect the view of the majority of their party in many ways. Uh, and, you know, that's a big problem. And th th there's th at the center of this problem is a lot of things. Partisanship that has occurred, things we talk about. But at the center of the center is this redistricting situation. And listen, I was in many ways, people, people think it's ironic that I'm the leader of this because uh, they view... What happened in Maryland is, is a way that, that gave me the opportunity to run for office, which I did. I had nothing to do with the redistricting. I actually ran against someone in the primary who the district was created for. But I heard from my constituents how upset they were with this. And it's my job to – and it made me really focus on this issue. And I have spent the last couple of years talking to over 100 groups on this issue. And there is a strong grassroots support for dealing with this system. And when you talk to average Americans – the political class is different. They love the system. But when you talk to average Americans, 99 out of 100 think this is a terrible system. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not even it's, – it, it's such a winning issue uh, it, with the American people that we should fix this. But it's got to be done on a national basis because both Democrats and Republicans are equally guilty of this problem. Um, so I, I know J Jamie Raskin, who uh, won the primary for the 8th Congressional District, actually had a clever idea which was Virginia, for Virginia and Maryland to um, agree to fix the system together. Uh, and I think that's a really smart idea in a way because it should be done on a national basis, right? But, but, we, but just like anything in life, you can have good role models. And I think if Virginia and Maryland work together is kind of because right now Virginia is, you know, largely gerrymandered for Republicans. I think that, so that's I'm pretty clear on this issue. Mm -hmm. um, we could talk probably for sure. several more hours <laughs> on various to. things but um could you just let our listeners know uh where they could go for additional information about your campaign and your position on some things that we didn't touch on sure i mean i you know i have uh, i have a website obviously delaney for congress we have a facebook page we have twitter we have all the social media uh and so it's pretty easy to find me and find my positions um and uh, i've got a lot of videos out there on on thing i've done ted talks on social impact bonds which is something that's really really important to me um, my position on infrastructure, we talked about climate, you know, my positions on jobs as someone who's actually really career. I'm the only former CEO of a public company in Congress. I've spent a lot of time working on pro-growth economic policy. All that stuff is up there. Okay. okay. Well, thanks This for is really in. fun. Can we do this again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Thanks for coming. Come on yeah, back. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks. In the Booth is produced by Graham Cullen, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and myself. Our theme music is courtesy of FMP reporter and rocker Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth.